it's a message, it's a parable that we all need to know, right? In part because Jesus gives it as an answer, part of his answer to the question, what do I need to do for eternal life? Which is like the most important question that any of us can ask. And so it's a story, it's a parable that we all need to know. So here's what I propose. I'm going to try to make this story strange to us again today. Who is the Good Samaritan? In our 18th episode, we press pause in our study series to hear from Father Andrew Tebow, curate of St. Bartholomew's, as he takes us deeper into one of Jesus' most well-known and beloved parables. Hello and welcome to the Transforming Lives Together podcast. Throughout his ministry, Jesus liked to utilize parables as a means to teach people about the kingdom of God and how we are to live for the kingdom of God. These were stories that, though on the surface dealt with worldly situations, carried a deeper spiritual truth. If you're familiar with the Gospels, then there might be a few parables you can remember off the top of your head, one of them most likely being the Good Samaritan. In our lesson this week, Father Thibault endeavors to make this beloved parable, in his own words, strange to us again, as he borrows from the thoughts of the early church fathers to help us see this familiar story in a richer, more theological light. Before we turn it over to Father Thibault, we would like to say thank you for your time as you tune in each week. We pray you are blessed and encouraged by the content of this podcast. Please listen through to the end to learn how you can connect with this podcast and with all that is happening at St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church. And now, here is Father Thibault with our lesson for this week. Please pray with me. And now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be ever pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So as I was preparing for the sermon this week, looking over the different passages that we've been given, trying to land on one or on a particular theme, I kept being drawn back to the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But admittedly, I was not very thrilled about that. I wanted to sort of push it off. The, the trick with the, the parable is that we all know it. Uh, it's probably one of the best known parables or stories within all of Scripture. Even those uh, our friends and family who don't know the Lord, who are outside the Christian faith, are familiar with the parable. We find it in referenced in movies and songs and literature all over the place, right? It, because it's, it's a universally applicable message, right? Who is our neighbor? And so the, the trick then becomes with a, something that we all know so well, or at least we think we know so well, when we come to the, the story or the passage or whatever it is, our eyes sort of just kind of glance over it, right? We know it. We don't need to pay that close attention to it. I already know the story. I know what it's about. So my eyes just kind of skim over it. It's the same for a preacher. We have the same temptation, right? We become familiar with these things. It sort of becomes like the water that we swim in. We don't even notice it anymore. And so our eyes kind of go right over it. And that makes things tricky. How do you preach something that we all already know? But the problem is, it's a, it's a message, it's a parable that we all need to know, right? In part because Jesus gives it as an answer, part of his answer to the question, what do I need to do for eternal life? Which is like the most important question that any of us can ask. 
And so it's a story, it's a parable that we all need to know. So here's what I propose. I'm going to try to make this story strange to us again today. And how I'm going to do that is we're going to follow a reading of the parable that the early church fathers, a way that they would read it. Saints like Origen and Ambrose and Augustine, to name a few. And they would read it, and this was sort of a secondary reading for them. It was not the primary way that they read it. They would read it the way that we know the story to be. A story about who our neighbor is. A story that challenges our prejudices in teaching us who our neighbor is. Uh, It turns out, according to Jesus, we are actually meant to love those we consider most deplorable to borrow a charged term from our own time. Uh, Not just those who are already insiders like us. And this is the primary way that it's been read. But what we're going to do today is sort of read it in in a different way, in a way that we might call theological or allegorical, which is to sort of dig down beneath the surface and try to find deeper spiritual meanings in the text. Now, mind you, we're doing this with an eye towards the way that it's been historically read, or or primarily read. And we're also doing it within the context of what we would call the rule of faith, the Nicene Creed. There are things that bind us up. We can't just go anywhere with the text. But it is a parable, so it gives us a little bit of of freedom. It's not something that we read. uh, It's not a historical account, so we have some flexibility as as it were. So, all of these caveats... And now we'll turn to the text. I invite you to open your your pew Bible to page 1035, 1035, where you will find Luke 10. And we'll be looking specifically at verses 30 through 37. And what we're going to do, we're going to go here sort of verse by verse, as it were, and looking at this in in a different light. Again, with the hope that it will become strange to us And we'll have fresh eyes to see the parable anew. So beginning with verse 30. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So starting here. What we have then is a man. And the early church, the fathers like Augustine and others, saw this man as sort of an everyman figure. He's an Adam figure. He stands in for all of us. So we have this everyman, this Adam, and he begins in Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the city of God. The place where Jesus is going to come again to establish His kingdom. The Israelites understood this to sort of be like the center of the cosmos. This is where the temple of God was. A temple that, if you recall from the Old Testament, God told them to decorate it and adorn it with images of the Garden of Eden. They were to understand this place to be paradise. And so then we have this every man, this Adam, beginning in paradise. And he's descending down. When you leave Jerusalem, no matter which way you're going, you're always going down. But we are told he, de- he goes down from Jerusalem and he's going to Jericho. Jericho was a very worldly city at this time. It was understood to be a city of the world. It was the city of man. It was a city given over to sin and corruption. 
And so you have this every man, this Adam beginning in paradise, and he's descending down to the world. He's going from the city of God to the city of man. From paradise, from perfection to sin and corruption. In short, we have a figure of the fall. The fall of humanity. So we find then that this every man, he falls among robbers. Robbers overtake him on the road. The church understood, the early church understood this to be, these robbers to be a figure of Satan. Who was it that seduced Adam and Eve in the garden? It was Satan. It was Satan that led to the fall. It was Satan that, because of his action and temptation, led humanity into death. It's in the fall and the actions of Satan that we are stripped naked and bare, relieved of our gifts and our treasures, robbed of these things, and left half dead. And actually left totally dead if we, are, if we take Scripture seriously. And then these robbers also represent Satan's minions, the demons that we all encounter in our life. We all know what it is to suffer. We all know what it is like to feel this, the aloneness of being left on the side of the road. And indeed, many of these things are because of spiritual attack. So we have this acknowledged here in this parable. Continuing, verse 31, And by chance a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So these two people, a priest and a Levite, who we ought to understand as the people we might expect to save this man, pass by him. They ignore him. Leave him there for dead. So we can understand them to be the things of this world that we might expect to save us. And yet don't. In the context of the parable, perhaps it's the law and the prophets. Remember, Paul tells us that the law only condemns. It's unable to save us because the law can't address our hearts. It remains outside of us. And it's when Christ writes the law on our hearts then that we are changed. But it requires our hearts to be changed. And the law doesn't have the strength or the power to do that in and of itself. It might be the institutionalized church. Those institutions that are church in name only. Think of the Episcopal church. That's abandoned faithful preaching and the faithful administration of the sacraments. The means of grace. The means of our salvation. They've abandoned these things. They're church in name only. Or maybe in our own context, we might think of it as science and technology. Things that many of us place our hope in to set us free. To bring about eternal life, even. To liberate us. And while they do much good, in the end, they, they come up short. Unable to liberate us. Unable to set us free from death ultimately. So these, the priest and the Levite then are the things that we might put our hope in for salvation, and yet they cannot bring us back to life. They do not help us. Now before, well, let's read uh, 33 and 34. And we'll read 35 as well. But a Samaritan, 
who was on a journey, came upon the man. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And whatever you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Let me say a few things quickly about the relationship between Samaritan and Jews that will help us see my next point a little bit more clearly. In the year 721, Assyria came upon the kingdom of Israel. And Assyria conquered Israel. And the practice of Assyria at the time was to, they would divide up the conquered people and they would take some of those people back to Assyria with them, or they would transplant those people into already conquered uh, states around the area. And then they would leave part of those people in the land where they were, in the conquered region. But in order to prevent rebellion and uprising, they would take conquered people from other places and relocate them there to the newly conquered land. So what we have then is Israel, the Jews, are divided up into two people. Some stay in the land, and others are taken into exile into Babylon. The ones who stay in the land intermingle with the people that are brought in, the other conquered people who come in. They intermarry with these people. They, Because the temple has been destroyed, they set up a new place of worship. And over time, because they've intermarried, they then take on certain practices of the the new religions that have come into the area. In contrast, the Jews taken into exile retain their purity by staying together, by remaining in close-knit communities. They do not intermarry. And they resist the, the, the allure, the temptation of these foreign gods. Eventually, the Israelites who were taken into exile come home. Right? Cyrus lets them go back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Well, as you might imagine, some conflict comes out of this. The Israelites returning see these people left behind in the way that they've intermarried and the, the new practices that they've inherited. And now they view these people, these Samaritans, as half-breeds as pagans. These Samaritans are deplorable. And from the Samaritan point of view, these Israelites who've come back are stuck up. They're snobbish. They think they're they're too good. And there's conflict that arises. So that by the time of Jesus, there's great enmity between these two people groups. There's no mixing between the one. There's persecution of one another. Such was the custom during Jesus' time. If, if a Jew was traveling from Jerusalem to the other side of Samaria, he would go the long way around. He would take the extra time to go around Samaria. This is some of what is so scandalous about Jesus' encounter with the woman in the well in John 4. Jesus makes the choice to go through Samaria to risk encounter with a deplorable person. You don't go there. Those people are unclean. 
How can you go through there? And yet Jesus goes purposefully that way. And He comes upon the well and He finds a woman there. The, the disciples are, are stunned. And initially they're stunned because she's a Samaritan. Doesn't Jesus know? We don't, we don't talk to those people. What's He doing? And on top of that, she's a woman and she's a harlot. Thrice deplorable. And yet Jesus is sitting there with her, loving her. Having a conversation with her, investing in her. So we see then that there's great animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews at this point. So let's get back to the ranch as they say. The Samaritans come down. One of the deplorables has come down. He sees his enemy, another deplorable on the side of the road, and he tends to him. Now on our reading, this ancient reading from the patristics, Jesus is the good Samaritan. Jesus is the one who comes to us while we were yet His enemy. He's the one that though He dwelt in heaven and was rich, He saw His divinity as not something to be grasped. But He took on the form of a bond slave, of a servant. He became a deplorable. So great was His love for us. And He sees the man the Adam left dead on the side of the road. And at his own expense, his own extravagant expense, he takes up the man, puts him on his beast, takes him to an end, an inn, to be healed, to be comforted, to receive rest and nourishment. And he stays the night with him, offering hospitality and care abiding with Him, living with Him. And then He goes to the man at the, the innkeeper and He says, here's two denarii. That's at least two days worth of, of wages that He pays. For this deplorable. And He says, I'll be back. I'll pay the rest when I get back. And we know the story of Jesus. We know He gives up riches beyond a measure. And He takes on our nature and He allows Himself to be nailed to the tree to pay our sin. He pays the ultimate cost on our behalf. Sparing nothing. No expense is too great for Him. Because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So then, we see that the, the inn is a figure of the church. The second Adam, the good Samaritan, takes the first Adam, the one half dead, and he brings him to the, the inn. And in the inn, the, the, the man stricken receives nourishment. He receives care and rest. All at the expense of the, the second Adam. We receive that care and nourishment in the Word and sacraments within the context of the church. And all of that has been paid for us by Jesus Christ, the Good Samaritan. And the church is the context in which we find that. 
The challenge for us today, saints, do the wounded of the world find that here? Can the deplorable come to us and receive nourishment and rest? Or do we show them the door? No room at the inn. Finally, Jesus, the good Samaritan, promises to return. And when He returns, He will settle all accounts. Which we know He has promised to us. So, in this light, the parable is a condensation of the Gospel. It is a figure of the Gospel for us. And as such, the parable should take on a new weight, a new light, new life when we go back and read it. Perhaps it's not... So, so normal as we thought it was. Maybe it is a little bit strange. So a few things to keep in mind, though, when we go back to read it on our own again. First, this parable is more than an example. Certainly it is an example. Jesus is the example. The Good Samaritan loving his neighbor is an example for us. But it is more than that. It is also an invitation. An invitation for us to participate in Christ's saving action of the world. His love for the world. And we do so by imitating Him as the true Good Samaritan. And by our being the inn where the wounded can come and receive the hospitality of Christ that He has paid for. Two, we are able to participate in His loving the world only because Christ loved us when we were left for dead on the road. To push further into the distinction between a Samaritan and a Jew, not only were we dead on the side of the road, we were a dead deplorable on the side of the road. Indeed, the whole of Scripture describes our state apart from Christ in this sort of language. We are enemies of God, we are told. We are dirty. We are unclean. We are foolish, unfaithful, adulterers. Oh, and I could go, but you get the point. And yet God, and yet God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son to heal us and to bring us back to life at His own extravagant expense. By taking on our nature, the Son of God heals our nature. By paying the penalty of our sin with His own death, He settles our accounts with His Father. By defeating death in His resurrection, Jesus gives us life. And by ascending to the right hand of the Father, He sends His Holy Spirit to empower us so that we can love our neighbor and participate in His saving action toward the world. But don't miss that before we can imitate Christ and offer His hospitality to others, we must first receive it ourselves. We are only able to love once we ourselves have been healed of our wounds. Once we have been nourished 
by Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit as we belong to His body, the church, which is where we find the means of grace, the Word and the sacraments. And finally, we should see that loving our neighbors as ourselves is actually a response to Christ's love for us. In other words, it is an act of worship and a fulfillment of the first commandment to love our God, our, the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and with all our strength. And this is how we are meant to love our neighbors extravagantly. Self-sacrificially. Just like Christ loved us. Sparing nothing and giving it all on our behalf. And to come full circle back to the primary challenge of this parable, our neighbor whom we are supposed to love self-sacrificially is the deplorable. Christ Jesus showed mercy to the deplorable who fell into the hands of the robbers and thereby demonstrated Himself to be the true good neighbor. The true good Samaritan. As an act of worship and gratitude for the love He has shown us while we were yet dead in our sins, we are to go and do the same. To the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. You have been listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. For more information about the church, including a list of our service times, please visit our website at www.stbartston.org. Again, that's www.stbartston.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating or a positive review. Both will help in reaching more people with this podcast. If you're on Facebook, head over to facebook.com slash transformingliveStogetherPodcast and give us a like. And if you're an Amazon Alexa user, say, Hey Alexa, play the Transforming Lives Together podcast to hear the latest episodes. We hope you will tune in next time as we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Until then, we leave you with these verses from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. God bless.